2: Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: Hey, welcome in. I'm Doug Gottlieb and this is All Ball. You're going to love this pod with Brian Dutcher, the head coach of the San Diego State Aztecs. And we'll we'll go all the way back to when he first got the job at Michigan uh, under Bill Frieder. We forget Bill Frieda was the head coach at Michigan. He had flirtations with Arizona State. And that was when the famous, we want a Michigan man to coach Michigan. That was Bo Schenbeckler back in the day. All of that led to him being promoted as assistant and Steve Fisher taking over. Steve Fisher coaching as an interim head coach, winning a national championship. We go from there to the Fab Five, to losing his job to San Diego State as an assistant, to now being the head coach. P- pretty amazing rise. And oh, yeah, by the way, since moving to San Diego in a place where people switch houses like every other week, same spot, no matter what the bank account. Pretty cool. I, I think you really love the discussion is he's, he's an amazing guy. He's an outstanding coach and they got a good thing going down on Montezuma Mesa uh, real quickly, a quick promo. Remember the Doug Gottlieb show daily three to six, Eastern 12 to three Pacific. iHeartRadio, Fox sports radio app. And of course, Sirius XM things it's 17, two Oh three. Uh, you'll find us. right, go find us. Appreciate you downloading this podcast and make sure you subscribe, uh, download, write a review, rate it. Um, Real quick on the NBA, as college basketball is about to get underway, a lot of exhibition games this this week. Point Loma takes down Pepperdine. They got a good thing down at Point Loma. Um, The Lakers went small with their starting lineup. Some of this is out of necessity, but what you're seeing, Frank Vogel, who knows they won a championship and the only way to win a championship is they got to have dynamic defensive guards and it feels like that's what he's kind of working towards. And the question becomes what happens with Malik Monk, you know, when, as everybody gets healthy, Trevor Reza, you feel like he'll have a spot in the postseason. but right now Ken base more has really earned some minutes. And um, I think if you look at the, you know, on ball defense is going to be paramount. If you're playing LeBron out there who, like LeBron has a reverse dunk. So people are like, well, he still has got it, but he doesn't move the same. And, you know, if depending upon lineups, they have, they're just different defensively. Russell Westbrook doesn't guard the way he used to guard. Uh, I thought the Lakers are starting to show their hand with what they truly want to do. And by that, I mean, they want to start uh, Anthony Davis at the five. And then the big question becomes, you know, if you have, Avery, can Avery Bradley maintain a spot in the starting lineup, but he and Kent Baysmore, their two best perimeter defenders and Bazemore hitting a couple threes last night, I think really helped him. Um, you know, Carmelo's getting a chance to score now. How does he adjust when they get to real basketball against real basketball teams? Sorry, the Rockets are not a real basketball team, but I do think that you're starting to see they want to play Anthony Davis, at the five and LeBron James, you know, kind of all over the floor. And they're going to have to start Russell Westbrook and then stagger him some with the second group and then figure out the rest from there. And the rest is really tricky, right? Does DeAndre Jordan go from starting to barely playing? Um, you know, how do they adjust with White Howard? I, like, they have to have those two big bodies when they play the Jokic of the world, but they're a better offensive team and the floor's opened up. And it's really important for Russell Westbrook when it's more opened up, when Anthony Davis is the five. Anyway, just some early thoughts on the Lakers. i got more thoughts for you. I'll share on upcoming pods. Thanks so much for joining us. Let me get you to Brian Dutcher, the longtime assistant right-hand man of Steve Fisher. He's uh, now entering in, what is this, his fourth season, fifth season as head coach of the Aztecs, and they have been spectacular the past couple of years. Let's catch up with Brian Dutcher. Okay, so I know how Steve Fisher got the Michigan job but how did Brian
4: Dutcher get the Michigan job? Well, I didn't get the Michigan job. I got the San Diego state job.
3: (laughs) No, 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 no. I mean, to be on, to be at Michigan, like how did that actually happen? Like, let's go. I want to, I want to go there. Okay.
0: Okay. I know how you
3: got the San Diego state job. You earned it over 20 years of building
4: up a program. How did you get the Michigan job? I was uh, at South Dakota state. And my dad was an assistant at Michigan at one point in his career. He went to the University of Michigan, played football there, and then helped with basketball. Uh, he was from Alpena, Michigan. And there was another guy from Alpena, Michigan named Bill Frieder. And so when uh, my dad was an assistant with Johnny Orr, Bill Frieder came on board as the other assistant at Michigan. So I knew Bill uh, when I was really young. I mean, middle school elementary school and so when the job finally opened uh having known Bill he asked me if I was interested and I said heck yes and so Bill Frieder hired me at Michigan Uh, I worked one year for him that was the 88-89 year when we won the national championship they wouldn't let him coach the team and then Steve took over uh won the national title and then we we moved on from there Bill went to Arizona State and had great success there. Okay
3: so that I mean, there's a there's a bunch that it it stimulates because I mean here we are, you know we're in 2021, and just the idea that a coach had this incredible team, and there was the famous he's not a Michigan man, right? And he's and they and Steve Fisher gets the job and he's still not given the job during the year and he wins the national championship and it was like an unbelievable year in the Big Ten, obviously the Blyan Illini at Illinois. An incredible year, but I mean, so what was that all like? You're on staff. What actually happened with Coach Frieder that he got relieved of his duties mid-year? Was, it, was he offered a contract extension? He didn't want it? Like, remind me of exactly how it went down.
4: You know, I, I don't know all that part of what, what his length of his contract was. I knew that Arizona State had tried to hire a coach in the past and was that coach promising me take the job and then he didn't take it in the end. So from Arizona state's perspective, I think they wanted a commitment from whoever they were going to hire next. And so they flew bill out there and he agreed to take the job. He was going to take the job, but after the season ended. And Uh, like you say, I don't think as much as you think something's a secret, it's never a secret. I, I wasn't even aware he was out there interviewing. And uh, the phone started ringing, and I think some of, the old, some of the players were prank calling, like, this is they're calling me, trying to find out if Bill was taking the Arizona State job. I didn't know what they were talking about. They were acting like they were newspaper reporters or some silly stuff like that. And then to find out, you know, they were waiting for Bill as he flew back from, from Phoenix. Uh, obviously, Bo Schembechler uh, was not happy with the situation and didn't let Bill coach the team. And so he let uh, Steve coach the team in the tournament. I'm sure at the time they felt it was a temporary fix. Hey, we'll get through the tournament and then we'll hire the coach we want to hire. And then we won two games. We won two more and we won it all. And so they hired Steve and uh, Mike Boyd and I both stayed at Michigan. Obviously Bill had offered all of us a chance to come to Arizona state with them when the season ended, but uh, we won enough to, to stay at the university of Michigan and,
3: had a nice long run there. What what was that like, if you could like jog your memory? Okay, so I remember being 13 years old, hanging out with Bill Walton, because his son Adam was my teammate growing up, and Bill got us into the kingdom to watch the Final Four. I remember the controversial call from Bill Robinson hitting two free throws, winning the game. I remember how much talent you guys had and how great Glenn Rice was. That's what I remember. What do you remember about the
4: Final Four? One of the memories that always stuck with me, as big a game as the national championship game is, I walked by the training room table, and Glenn Rice was sleeping before the game on the training room table. So you talk (laughs) about, like, the silent assassin. No stress. He wasn't worried. He was sleeping on the training room table, like, right before the game. So, I mean, what he did in the tournament... No one has come close to doing it, in my opinion. He still held, holds the all-time scoring record for six games in that tournament, putting 30-some up a game, uh, a shooting at a level I don't think I've seen anybody shoot at since then. Uh, Glenn Rice was amazing. And then we had a cast around him that all played in the NBA, Ramil Robinson, Terry Mills, Lloyd Vaught. Lloyd Vaught uh, so Mike, yeah. Mike Griffin was the glue guy, you know, the sacrifice part of his game to make everybody better. And then we still had – Sean Higgins, Eric Riley—that was an incredible team. Rob Pelinka was on that team, GM of the Lakers. Sure. Rob was a very good player, so we had talent. But we all know talent alone doesn't win. You have to—you have to hit stride at the right time. You have to, uh, not unlike UCLA did last year. I mean, they hit an sure. incredible rhythm, and Juzang carried them with his shooting. And so you never know. I mean, you can have whatever season you have, but when you get to the dance, I always say you could shake it up restart it with the same matchups and you probably have a different champion every year.
3: Okay. So, but what was, was, was that team? How good was that team in the regular season? Cause remember there's no, there's also for people who, who aren't old enough to remember the big 10 didn't have the big 10 tournament. So it wasn't like you got hot in the big 10 tournament, made a run. You had all, all big 10 play. And um, I remember as Illinois being the best team, in the big 10, I was like my, one of my favorite teams to watch. Um, Indiana was obviously very good. Purdue was very good. Uh, that was a hell of a league. How, how good were you guys in the regular season?
4: We were good, but everybody in the Big Ten, if you had one NBA player, you were lower division. If you had two NBA <laughs> players, you had a chance to be in the upper division, and then you needed three or four if you were going to win it. And so everybody had NBA players. Uh, uh, I remember, you know, when Illinois played us, we had a great team. Mark Hughes was a captain. Uh, he's with the Clippers now. And, and they rolled us over on senior night, and everybody was saying, "Don't worry, it's senior night. Michigan never loses on senior night at home." And Illinois rolled over the top of us. So yeah, they were really, really good, and uh, we were fortunate uh, to play. We did the way we did in the in the final four to beat them in the semis.
3: Okay, so um, you win a national championship, and um, I'll tell you one of the one of my memories. Uh, strongest memories in covering sports or just being around sports is the next year. And you guys walked in, in your second game to that buzzsaw of Loyola Marymount. right? I was at the New Mexico state game where they blew out New Mexico state. It was as emotional basketball game as I'd ever been to. It was the first game since Hank died. Right. And then I remember I didn't go to the second round. It was at long beach. And, I think it was close at the half. They scored 144 points on you guys. And it was one of those things where, where um, what I remember about that style was you guys would get running up and down the first half and they'd score so easily. And you're like, piece of cake, right? This is a joke. They don't play any defense. And then all of a sudden, the second half guys are missing layups. Missing wide open jump shots. They just can't move. They, they completely ran out of gas. Um, was that what happened against the Lerner Mount the next year?
4: You know, I took two showers the day of that game. I was so nervous and knew what we were in for. And the hard part is they were going to be hard to play how much, no matter how much prep time you had. Gotcha. But we played, I think, Illinois State in the first game, had one day to prepare for that press. And so your choice is, are we going to try to slow it down or are we going to play? Well, we had four starters back basically from the national championship team, NBA players. And it's like, there's no way we're going to slow that team down in one day. We had to play with them. We had too much talent not to. But what it is, Doug, you know, your point guard's in the backcourt. He's usually your best finisher. And so you break the pressure and you throw it ahead to guys that maybe don't have that opportunity every possession to say, I'm going to go to the basket and make a play. And so we scored a lot, but not anywhere near what they scored. And, and just a thought in that game is you play the game and the refs would come up and warn you when the ball goes through the net, don't touch the ball. If you touch the ball, we're going to te- give you a technical. And that was all just Westhead building the culture, talking to the refs. Hey, that's the lay of game. They t- and, you know, 90 percent of players, when the ball goes through the net, they touch the ball. And so if you touch the ball in the net, they give a warning and tee you up. They wanted to play at that pace where they didn't want that ball disturbed when it came through the net.
3: Okay. So here's the thing that I don't know if people understand about you is you have the the detail of how you coach and see things is at a, is at a level that I don't think a lot of, I I think there's a lot of high, high level head coaches that have it in their brain, but they don't articulate it. Like when, when I covered you guys at CBS and I did all those games, I remember we'd sit and there were little things that you would pick up on that most people would miss. So, the other part to it is you learn from every game you coach, every game that you play, and the smart people put it in the back of their brain. So, if you could go back, um, how would you slow them now? Would you hop into a one, two, two? Would you put a guy on the ball on a made shot to kind of slow that inbounds play? Would you deny the ball to Lowry? So they, they can't just get it out of the net and go like, again, this is, I know it's more than, but 30 years later, but what would you, what, if you could, if you could prep for that game and you'll had only one day, what would you do different
4: today? I'm going to tell you what, that game uh, put us in the national championship game of the fab five because we were playing Kentucky with Mashburn. Patina was pressing like crazy and and we just said, listen, because obviously when you tell the Fab Five, you're going to be pressed and you can't run this game. We're, we're not running. This suits them. We've been down this road. We played a game against uh, LMU. We tried to run with us. It cost us. Our, our pride got in the way and we ran with them and it cost us. And so you fast forward. And you play Kentucky, and it was like Juwan and Jalen. You bring the ball up. We're going to flatten everybody down because they want to run and jump. They need interceptors. So we were going to walk the ball up the floor. And If they trap Jalen, Juwan was more than capable of bringing the ball up and starting offense. Plus, you have and size. So, you
3: can see. Plus, you have size, and you can see see the traps coming.
4: Exactly. But the point is, you have to swallow your pride. You got to say we're not running because we don't think you're good enough. We could run and probably, like you said, have success for part of the game. But in the long run, we're probably not going to beat Kentucky, a pressing team at that point, at that game. And so I don't know if we could ever go back and do LMU over again with that team we had. I don't – the problem was, Doug, we had a week to get ready for Kentucky. LMU on a one-day prep, like what is that one thing? I don't know. I haven't gone back and watched it and say, what is the one thing I can take away – uh, that will give us a chance to win the game. And I don't know what that is even to this day. I haven't gone back and watched the tape.
3: Okay, here's here's a question. So why don't people play that way anymore? And and I preface this by saying, as you know, my brother is now with Molly Miller at, at Grand Canyon. Now, she doesn't play as, as fast offensively. They play pretty fast. And obviously it's the women's game. So it's a little different, but they do press all out. They do run and jump. They trap the basketball. Um, it, it is more of an kind of an AAU sort of style uh, with a lot more rules to it, a lot more uh, defined rotations and a lot more teaching to it. But, you know, you go back and Arkansas in 40 minutes of hell. Nobody really plays that way anymore. LMU. Nobody really plays that, that way uh, a- anymore. Um, So I I think that uh, that's like a big question to me is how come no one plays that way anymore?
4: I always tell the team at the start of the year. I say every year uh, there are 364 teams in Division One, and every one of them is going to be a better running team this year. I said halfway through the year, there's only going to be 10 or 12 good running teams in the country. So it's same with press. It's a commitment. Are you going to be that team? Are you going to be that coach that all of a sudden you give up 12, 14, 16 points on layups and you're going to live with that? That that takes a special coach to say, uh, I'm going to give up a, a 16 point lead in the first half because I'm pressing because I know in the second half, I'm going to catch up and run. I'm going to win the game in the second half. I'm going to wear them down. That's a full commitment, not only from the coaching staff, but the players and, I just think it's hard to find a group or a culture that would be that committed to press that length and to be in that kind of shape to go for 40 minutes every game of the year and do that.
1: Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live.
5: There's no distance too far for the perfect trip.
3: Okay, you you mentioned the Fab Five, and um, there's a lot of stories that have been told about that group. How did it come together, though? Right? How did how did it was it two years out? You said, "Hey, let's get these five kids." Was it kind of on the fly? Was there one? I've heard Jawan was the linchpin in terms of recruiting the other guys. How how'd that how that group come together?
4: I mean, we had Chris Weber right in the state, right down the road, arguably the best player in the country that year. We had uh, uh, Jalen Rose right there in the state. We had Vashon Leonard at Southwestern with Jalen. Had a lot of good players in the state of Michigan. But Chris didn't appear in a hurry to be signing early anywhere. Jalen didn't want to sign early. I think they were both late signings. And I just felt that if we didn't get either one of them, Juwan Howard was a guy, if we just got Juwan, would be good enough to win us a lot of games. And so the summer, back then, uh, there weren't certified events. If a kid was playing in July, you could go see him anywhere he played, in the park, wherever he played. And I saw Juwan every day in July, all 30 days or whatever that was, whether it was at the ABCD camp, Nike camp in Princeton, New Jersey, or whether it was in a park in Chicago. I saw Juwan every day because I felt he was that important. And uh, uh, he loved Michigan. We got him to campus before the summer, before his he blew up. I mean, everyone knew he was a good player. But after the ABCD camp, uh, uh, he was ranked maybe the top player coming out of that camp. I think he and Jason Kidd, And uh, so we had done a lot of work on Juwan once we got him. And you can see it now. I mean, look at the way he coaches. Look at the way he recruits. He was the same person like that in high school. Engaging, smart, personable. And so he helped us recruit the rest of the class. Now, we worked as coaches, but uh, they say in recruiting, everyone talks about you have to have a champion that says it's okay to come with me to go this place. And Jawan was uh, instrumental in helping us recruit them all. We also – had a recruiting uh, assistant coaching position Open all season. And we hired Perry Watson, Jalen Rose's coach. Now, Perry had won state championships, uh, was a really good coach. So this was uh, uh, not just a, a hire because he had Jalen Rose. This guy had had a number of NBA players, Antoine Jobert. He had uh, Howard Isley, who was an assistant with Juwan. And so we hired Perry and and, and Perry helped convince Jalen that he should come to Michigan. And then Jalen helped convince Chris that all of us together would be, do something special. So it was like a perfect storm in recruiting. Uh,
3: what, what was that like? What was that group like when you're in your, your coaches meetings, right? And you're sitting there and coach fish is, you know, you guys are planning for the season the first year, you know, you guys, what, what, what was really being discussed about that group and how you
4: wanted to handle it? Just, we had other good players coming back too. I mean, we had nice. Mr. Basketballs and Michael Talley, and we had, we had good players. And so, you know, coach Fisher is not a coach that ever over promised and under delivered. He always promised an opportunity. I I'd never heard him in all the years I worked with a Michigan, San Diego state promise a guy, a starting spot. And so, you promise opportunity, and and so when all of a sudden you throw two freshmen in the lineup, you don't you you don't have two seniors on the team or a junior on the team that was promised a spot and he thinks he's entitled to it, and so it all played out on the floor. And I guess the thing that Coach Fisher probably saw more than anybody was that Jalen Rose was a point guard. You know, he wasn't a point guard in high school. He had Howard Isley, he had Bash- Bashan Leonard uh, in the backcourt, and Jalen was like a Swiss Army knife. He played anywhere. But uh, put him as a freshman point guard and, and uh, take a team to the national championship game is an incredible feat by him and by Coach Fisher to see that he could play that spot at an elite level.
3: The, the other part that's really interesting, you mentioned how Juwan is now. Um, anyone who's met Chris, and I know Chris is – been in and out of that kind of circle and now he's kind of back in that circle. Uh but everybody knows Chris is exceptionally bright. And every, and, and jalen is exceptionally bright. Um did you did you know that like it's one thing to get five tremendous freshmen and they obviously have this incredible bond. Before you got them, did you know they had that level of a uh, vacuum basketball acumen? Like those are three it's it just feels really rare to get three kids that talented, but they're also that smart and have that level of wherewithal. Did you know that before you got them?
4: I No, I, you would never, I mean, you could say you did, but that wouldn't be the truth. You don't know. You never know until you put them on the floor and you put them out there together and you see what it is. You know, I know there's rankings and there's hype and we all embrace that. You know, it, it sells tickets. It's good to, uh, promote the program, but until you put them on the floor together and see how they blend, how they meld, you know, for everybody, it was like, when we recruited Juwan and Chris, why would you go there? They're going to get Weber. Uh, You're the same position as Weber. Or once we got Juwan, why would you go there? They've got Juwan. You're the same position. You'll never play together. And that's recruiting. And so when we got them, we put them out there and they played great together. You know, they complimented each other. And so you never know until you, you put them out there on the floor. Maybe all of a sudden you get them and they're identical and they both can't play together. So you, at some level, there's there's what you think is going to happen. Then there's the reality of what happens. And that's never proven until you prove that on the floor.
3: Uh, the timeout and the Carolina game. And I do think what's, what's interesting about it is there are some moments in basketball that are so big, we completely forget about the whole rest of the game. Right, It was an unbelievable basketball game. I've watched it like four or five different times. And all anybody focuses on is the timeout, right? Or the travel that was missed and and the timeout and all that was discussed. Years later now, what do you remember about that Carolina game?
4: I just remember the comment I made after the game. And and I don't know if it helped her at all, but it was like, we're not here without Chris Webber. We're not in this moment. And so to sit here and, and, and say he cost us the title, we had no chance to win the title without him. And so, yeah, uh, he's not the only one that's ever called a timeout when, when you don't have one. But that was a big moment to do it, so it was national news. But we don't come close to getting there, to, to reaching that moment without him. And so I felt so bad for him. And to his credit, he did not let that moment define him. It was part of who he is. He had to live with that. We all know that. But he grew so much beyond that to, to be in the uh, uh, Basketball Hall of Fame, to have the kind of pro career he had. And and you look at it, it's like, I mean, those Sacramento teams. You remember that when they played the Lakers, yeah. how close they were those games too? Ori yeah. hits that three. There's always a moment in the game. And Sacramento, Sacramento might have been good enough to win an NBA title if it wasn't for Ori's – uh, uh, heroics at the end of some of those Laker games. And so uh, your career is what it is. You know, you, you go out there, you play as hard as you can, as long as you can, you play the right way, and hopefully you're rewarded. And sometimes you're not. And, and Chris had a magnificent college and pro career and uh, uh, is one of my favorites of all time. And, and Chris is one of my favorites, more, more so off the floor. You know, Chris was a prodigy. So everybody always wanted a piece of Chris. They wanted to be around Chris from the ninth grade on. But the moments where people don't see him when he's with your kids and he's around small children that don't have an agenda. He's so good with people uh, uh, and, and just so kind and caring that a lot of people don't see that side of him. But I got to see that firsthand with my own kids.
3: Um, what was the like locker room really like after that?
4: Just dead silence. What, what can be said? You know, there's not you're not throwing chairs. You're not yelling and screaming out of anger. You're just dead silence. It's just the gravity of the moment. It's like all that piled on top of you that, you know, uh, it wasn't like it was the first time we'd lost the year before to Duke in the national championship game with five freshmen. Then the five sophomores come back and to lose again, to, to have your your chance at history. Right in your hands and let it slip through. The gravity of that is just devastating. It's just you sit there and you're just in your own feelings and your own thoughts at that time. There's nothing that anyone's going to say that's going to uh, make it easier right after that loss.
3: Time heals so much, and you guys are going back this year, right? You're going, you're going to go back, and um, those guys are are now back on campus. Obviously with Juwan coaching, but it's it's much more than that. Um, what is that going to be like for you emotionally, right? A place you're, you, that's special to your entire family, a place that you had so many growing years as a coach, but a place that it didn't, it didn't end the way it, it probably should have, right? Like I, what's happened in San Diego state probably is what should have happened in Ann Arbor, um, for you personally. What's that going to be like taking your crew back and kind of getting the family sort of back together with that game?
4: It's going to be great. I haven't been in the building since 1998. So to get back in the arena will be a lot of fun and, and uh, play against a guy that I recruited to the university. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool that, that. And our his son, and his son,
3: and his son, his son playing as well. Like that whole thing is. Amazing. Yeah. His
4: son, his son playing there, his other son going there. I mean, this is a guy I knew since his junior year of high school. I went to, to the apartments uh, 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 when he was a junior in high school, spent time with his grandmother and, and his family. And, you know, to see him be the coach there, I couldn't be any more proud of him. I mean, I, mean, I try, we probably should have let him coach the team. He's he, Even as a, a freshman, he's a heck of a coach. And so it's so fun to be on this journey. And it's just, you know, coaching's a journey if you're fortunate enough to make it a a career in this business, and and it's hard to do. I mean, how many guys retire in the business? I work for one of them, Steve Fisher, but most of the time you're retired before you're ready. But uh, to be uh, able to go back and play against a guy you recruited is always going to be a special moment.
3: So um, what do you remember about Coach Fisher telling you about San Diego State?
4: He just said, I had, you know, I sat a year, you know, I, I left Michigan. I stayed the year. They didn't, they got rid of coach right before the season. And I stayed with Brian Ellerby and Scott Trost. so we had a heck of a year. We won the first ever big 10 tournament title. That was the first year they had the tournament with trailer and, and Travis Conlon, Bullock, uh, uh, Baston. We had a great team and, and, uh, Robbie Reed and, and, uh, to win that thing was so special. So And then then, uh, to sit a year, I left after that year. Obviously, I'd been Steve's assistant coach for nine years, and I didn't get the job. So uh, I can't blame them for not hiring me. They got rid of the head coach, and they're not going to give it to his longtime assistant. I understood that. So as much as I would have loved to have had it. And so I sat a year. I worked with my dad, a former coach at the University of Minnesota. Uh, He was in the investment business. I spent a year with him. He says, Brian, this is a good business. It, you know, it's not coaching, but it's good. And come here, spend a year with me, and see what you think of it. And obviously, I didn't have the passion for it; he did. So, and so I had my resume in hand. You didn't stay in Ann Arbor? No, I was in Minneapolis. So I went to Minneapolis and was with my dad and and my mom and the family, and and so I had my resume in hand. I was going to the Final Four to try to find a job. You know, and 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 coaches always have a high opinion of themselves, but. You realize when you don't have a job and you start handing resumes out and like, wow, I guess a lot of people aren't going to hire me or don't want to hire me, you know? And for whatever reason, people, it's hard to get a job in coaching. You know, this is, let's say there's 300 subdivision one schools. Let's say at the very greatest end, a hundred of them are really good. That means there's 300 assistance jobs for the whole country. So how are you going to get one of those 300 jobs? So I had my resume. I was going back to try to get a job, any job in coaching. And Coach Fisher called me when I got there. He said, I'm taking San Diego State tomorrow. I want you to come with me and promise me you'll stay three years, you know, that you'll help me build it. But if you find something else, I understand that. But you promise me you'll stay three. And 23 years later, here I sit as the head coach at San Diego State. So what Coach was able to do here, uh, what he was able to build, and what I was able to take over is an incredible blessing.
3: I want to get to that in a second. Here's here's it's funny you said about the number of coaching jobs. I remember I was at ESPN and I'd interviewed for a couple of head coaching jobs. And I would have people say, like, why don't you just take an assistant job? And I can remember being at the final four and you're in the lobby and you look at all the guys that want those jobs, right? And I just thought to my and I've always had this in my mind, which is like, look, I have I actually I actually have more respect for how hard it is, and that's why I never did it. Right? Because I, I I would look and I'd see a thousand coaches, and I would know that there are five thousand more that want those handful of jobs. Now I have a job in covering the sport, which I would say just as many people want. But I have the equity, I have the resume. Like, why would I put myself in a pool of, you know, five thousand coaches for three hundred jobs? When even though there's maybe. 50 jobs in my field, there's not nearly the number of people that have done it. So that was, it was the same kind of mental calculation that I made in my brain. But San Diego State, so, okay, as you know, I grew up in Orange County. And San Diego State literally was the last school anybody wanted to go to, right? San Diego State, and now you'd go there if you want to party, right? but it was at that, and this is mid-90s, it was everyone's safety school. As for both basketball, or not necessarily much football, basketball and just life in general, right? It was it was the it was the you'd rather do Long Beach State, right? Maybe San Jose State was a was was a slight notch below, but it was again off the radar sort of thing. Um, When you arrive, it's nineteen ninety nine, okay? Nineteen ninety nine. You guys, it was still in the old gym. No, it was was the new arena, right? It was the new arena. Okay. So you're in the new arena. What What did you know? What did you think? What were those first couple experiences like?
4: I mean, it's like field of dreams. Build it and they will come. The arena was a huge piece to our success. You know, they were playing at Peterson Gym. They were playing at the downtown sports arena. They didn't have a facility like we had when we got here. I think uh, Trinkle was maybe in it one year, it just opened. And so you go there and you say, man, this arena is big time nice. This is a big time college basketball arena. And so you have something to bring them to. You walk in the building, you say, boy, this is really nice. This is as good as anywhere you're going to find on the West Coast. And, and so that was a start to have a facility like that. And then they built the, the Fowler Athletic Building across the street, weight rooms, offices. And when Smokey Gaines was here, they were working out of trailers, you know? And so there were a lot of good coaches here and good people, but they didn't have anything to sell. The school was fine. The school was great. And, and it's grown. It's it, at one point, maybe a year or so ago it was the second most applied to school in the country. UCLA. No, it's completely,
3: it's, it's, it, it really does mirror your program, right? Now, San Diego State's it's hard to get into and everybody wants to go there. And it's a lot like your basketball program, which was completely dormant. And now it's, you know, I mean, I know UCLA almost won a national championship, but that's you guys have been consistently the best team in the state. Like that, it's it's a dramatic turnaround that they've kind of gone hand in hand, the school and and the program. Okay, the thing, but go ahead.
4: The thing I like about it is the schools embrace that they've embraced that men's basketball, the athletic department is the front door to the university. You know, we get the headlines. Uh, we help draw people to the university and they embrace that. They don't say, well, well, you're doing, we're doing it despite you. You know, they they embrace the fact that, that our rise academically and athletic have been on the same path. And so we enjoy that uh, uh, camaraderie with campus, you know, that we're all in this together. We're trying to build the brand that is San Diego state, uh, both academically and athletically and the school you can see is, you come to campus now, uh, you can't even recognize it from what it was uh, uh, 23 years ago when I got here. This place is unbelievably nice. And now that we have another piece of land where they, tor- they tore down Qualcomm, the old Jack Murphy Stadium, we'll be- we're building a 35,000-seat football stadium, and we're going to grow campus over there. So I think San Diego State is still just scratching the surface of what it's going to be as a university and as athletic program.
3: Your first year, we played you guys. And, you know, my brother's like D O B O. And I'll never forget, we're playing at the Myriad in Oklahoma City. And we're up, I think it was 40 to 14 at the half. And um, Coach Sutton comes in, and he would do this every now and again where he was in a really good mood. And we had a really good club. And um, we'd played well in the first half which, you know, like, you, as you know, you can have a really good team and really like your team, and then some days the guys just play poorly, and you just, all right, how are we going to fix, just win this game? But we were playing well. So he came and sat next to me, and he said loud so everybody can hear, you need to tell your brother to get some players. They won't be there very long, right? So no one's ever done it without players. And you guys started the process of, It wasn't really rebuilding. You're just building, right? Never won the league before. So you started the process. I I think initially it was with the transfers. Um, And then you got started to get kids that people missed on in LA, in Sacramento, um, in Modesto, in the Inland Empire. Did, did, did you guys have a philosophy with transfers? Was that the plan? Like, I've, I'm always I, I know sometimes things just happen and you figure all everybody says like this is the plan but sometimes things just happen and it works out. It, was there a, a thought or a philosophy of here's how we're going to build it initially and then we'll see what happens after that?
4: Well, Coach Fisher knew we had a recruit. I wasn't at that game Doug, when when San Diego State played there, and I never miss a game. But Coach Fisher, when we got here, said our future's in someone else's gym, so I didn't need to be in our gym. I need to be in someone else's gym finding his players. So I miss games. I never miss games. But to build the program, we had to go recruit players. I think the two players that got the program started off were Randy Holcomb from L.A. City College and and Tony Bland, who transferred back from Syracuse. Because Tony had a national reputation. He had a huge reputation in L.A. And Randy was just a warrior. He was uh, a player athletically, uh, 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 temperament-wise, that they hadn't had here in a while. And so those two, along with DeAndre Moore, a transfer from Vanderbilt, came back. And they were the start of the program. And uh, we, Coach Fisher would say, you know, we got to sell where we've been to start. We've got to sell Michigan. But in three years, if we're talking about Michigan, we haven't done anything here. So he knew we couldn't sit here and talk about Michigan for 10 years, about the fan five or the national championship. That would wear out. And so we had to get players right away. And it was a bell curve, Doug. We were in the NCAA tournament, I think, our third year. I think our third year we were in the NCAA tournament. And then we went down again, and then we worked our way back up. And that's the thing about coaching that, that frustrates me, and I know it frustrates coaches. When you take a job, usually you're on a three-year window, three or four years. If you get to four year, year four, and you're not winning, you're out. So that's saying you get hired late your first year. All the recruits are gone, basically. So you fill in. Your second year is your first class. You don't even get your first class through their senior year, and they've got they've, they've moved on. They, they, well, we need someone else. And well, now when you replace a coach, you're saying we're going to replace the whole team because if a coach leaves, the whole team's leaving now with the transfer market. And so I think schools have got to do diligence, pick the guy that they think is right, and then give them time. Give them time to build a program. And we've had the time, and we've built a program now. I mean, we're not, like Coach would say, we're not a one-hit wonder. We're not going to be good one year and then bad two and then good one. We, we're we pretty consistently good now. And it's because of uh, uh, the words that everyone used, culture, uh, uh, belief, support. We have all that now. And so now uh, it, it's not easier. I mean, you still have to roll your sleeves up and work. Players just don't come. You have to go get them. But I think, like you were saying, we were ahead of the game in the transfer market. Back then the high majors, the blue bloods had turned their nose up to a transfer. And now everybody's in the transfer game. And I think we kind of did it better than anybody when it started.
3: We did it pretty well at Oklahoma State. I just, yes, just, just gonna just gonna point that out. Like we had yes, you did. we we were, that was, that was kind of the key there, right? we had um, I mean, even before me, obviously Brett Robish came in. Um, and then you know their final four team in 2004. They had the Grand Boys that were Central Florida. Uh, they kind of fell into John Lucas, right? They had Tony Allen who's a JUCO. They had Daniel Bobbick who's from BYU, right? I mean, they just they they figured out. I mean, I've McFarland was kind of like a San Diego State type where he was going to go to Texas Tech, but then he was a prop, so he came to Oklahoma State, and he's just an absolute warrior. That, that's how they built that that team. Um, okay, so I think. I think what people – I think the Kawhi team felt like it puts you on the national map, but what's interesting about the Kawhi team is now, years later, Kawhi's such an incredible player that it, you get the sense that it was like he was a one-man team. I thought that team – what made that team special was you had Mo and a couple of those other seniors that were uh, – Richie Williams, right, his little point
4: guard? No, like, a, that was that was even before that. Kawhi's team starting lineup was Malcolm Thomas, okay. who's still playing in Russia, overseas. Billy White, who is as good a player as you're going to find in the country. Athletic and play. DJ Gay, who would never turn the ball over, hit game-winning shots. Chase Tapley, Kawhi Leonard. Then off the bench, Brian Carwell from Illinois. uh, Mehdi, uh from France. We had Tim Shelton, just a warrior. I oh, mean, we fans. were deep and big. And we were 34 and three. We lost three games that year, twice to Jimmer and once to Kemba. The the two best guards in the country that year. So that team, you talk about rolling the dice and hitting it right. That team was good enough to win a national championship. Now it's easy to say, well, you didn't. We lost to uh, Connecticut and they went on to win the title in a pretty good game. And that was a game Kawhi Leonard, two years, never got a technical foul, never said a word. And all of a sudden, first half, early in the first half, he gets a foul called on him, and then they hit him with a T. So we got to put him on the bench for a bunch of the first half. You know, it's right away, two fouls. And so you never know. And uh, Jamal Franklin, that game, bumps into Kemba going off the floor. Kemba spins and falls down, technical foul on Jamal Franklin. And we're a pretty disciplined team. That We're not undisciplined where we're just uh, 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 doing crazy things, but crazy things happen in basketball. So we didn't win it, but were we good enough to win it? Yeah, we certainly were. This is it.
1: We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax
4: like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next.
1: Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER.
2: Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away.
0: Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit Lisa.com slash iHeart. That's dot acom slash iHeart.
3: Um, you where were where were you when you were told you got you were getting the job?
4: Uh I think coach probably called me in. Jim Stirk was our athletic director and Jim was the one that hired Dick Bennett and and had Tony coach and waiting Tony Bennett. So -hmm. we had great success with that Washington state. Come on. Those guys were really good coaches, the Bennett's. And so I had the right athletic director. We came off the 34 and three year and uh, coach Fisher lobbied for it. And Jim Sturt thought it was a good idea. And and they named me coach and waiting. And so that gave coach Fisher, sometimes a head coach, uh, You want him to go as long as he wants to go, but sometimes if he wants to help his assistant coach, he might have to say, well, I better leave after a good year to make sure Brian gets it. Well, once I'm named coach and waiting, coach could go on whatever timeline he wanted to go on. Maybe he would have anyway, but he could say, I can leave whenever I want, knowing that Brian's going to be the next head coach, which I'm always grateful to both he and Jim uh, for, for doing that for me. And then obviously the president had to sign off on it. And then they said, well, we better call the chancellor's office. This is an HR thing. Can we name a guy in advance? They call the chancellor's office. They said, we're good with it. So this wasn't just an easy process. This is a lot of work to get this done.
3: Now, your wife's an incredibly talented artist, right? And you guys have been out there 20 years. Did she ever, you've never switched homes. Like your income has changed, right? The, the whole, like you're, you, you've, you've been there forever. Why not? Why not go get a place where you, you hear the waves crashing against, you know, when you wake up every morning? Why not? Why not upgrade? Why stay in the same place?
4: It's like it's who you surround yourself with when you're in a neighborhood and you're in a house a long time. It's not the house. It's the people in your neighborhood. And we've loved the people that we've lived around. And so, yeah, we could move a half hour away and find a newer house or a bigger house. But the neighbor, the houses, the people you put in it, are around it, and so that's the way we've been. We've loved our neighborhood. We've loved where we are. And like I said, I live how I live. I'm not, you know, I get more money. I'm not going out and buying a bigger car or anything like that. I, I don't do that sort of thing. I'm I'm just happy with what I have and and just live how I live.
3: It's some really amazing stuff. Um, when you first when 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 Coach Fisher decided to retire, what's that? What's that like? Like, you've been with him a long time. And obviously, you know, no, I, and outside the program, I, you didn't know whether he wanted to keep coaching for Mark or he wanted to spend time with his grandson. You know, it's just a, it's an incredible bond between those two, between Mark and coach in that, you know, I almost felt like coach did it a couple extra years because you guys helped really run the program and he could spend a ton of time with Mark at practice or at home. And, um, I thought it was the, the thing they had together. What was the, what were the emotions like when he finally said, Hey, I'm, I'm really done this time.
4: Yeah. Well, first of all, Mark and coach what a better way to spend time with your son than on the same coaching staff. Amazing. I mean, you're, I mean, you see your dad, if you're not working together, how you see your dad on the weekends, maybe occasionally, but to go to work with your son every day, to have that kind of relationship is incredible. And, Mark and coach shared that. And now Mark shares that with me. I'm so grateful. He's still on the staff, but uh, uh, coach called us all in the office. And, and I didn't know ahead of time. That's one thing I thought he would tell me before he told anybody. Oh, you, so you didn't know at all. No, I didn't know at all. He called the whole coaching staff and we're all sitting in his office. And he said, uh, I'm retiring as of this week. And Dutch is taken over. It's like, <laughs> I heard with everybody else. I am like, Oh my goodness gracious. Of course, you have that feeling immediately, oh, man, how good! Are we? we better be good. I got to get to work. And, you know, it, as much as you just say, it's always easier as being an assistant because you can always say, well, I would have done this or I would have done that. And now you're the head coach. It's okay. Now what are you going to do? So uh, you always learn something, Doug. You know, I thought I would have been a good head coach when I was 30, but I wouldn't have been as good a head coach as I was when I took over in my 50s. You know, you learn a lot of lessons along the way. And if you survive, you're lucky to put them to use. And so I learned a lot from Steve Fisher. I learned a lot from my dad, Jim Dutcher. I learned a lot from two years with Lou Henson at Illinois. You know, Jim Thorson at South Dakota State. There's lessons to be learned. And if you're fortunate enough to survive, you can put those lessons to work. So hopefully that's what I'm doing now. I'm, uh, I've got a good contract. I've got a good team. I've got great assistant coaches that, that make my life easy. You know, I can go out there and uh, I, I, can, I can sit back. And I learned this from Coach. If you've got good people, you have to delegate. You can't sit there and have them uh, on the sideline watching you run a practice and doing all the talking. You have to delegate. And, and if you delegate, then they feel like they're contributing on a daily basis. Then they want to stay because they feel what they're doing is winning games. And it is. So I've got a great coaching staff, uh, Dave Velasquez, Chris Acker, JD Luster, JD Pollock, Matt Sorey has been with me as my ops guy for twenty some years. Dave's been with me twenty some years, and so I've got a great staff, and they make my life easy, and it, it makes it fun to come to work every day.
3: Um, and as much as you thought you'd be great at thirty, and you know you're better at fifty, there there wasn't it wasn't you didn't have the best team in the league right away. It wasn't, you know, competing for a national championship right away. Was were there any moments of self doubt where you are like, maybe this isn't what I what I thought it would be? Well, in those those first couple of years, they weren't that that was that was not a part of the, the championship cycle. What was that like for you emotionally, mentally, in terms of your own personal self confidence and what you thought you could do?
4: Yeah, you always you always fight the confidence battle. You want to make sure you are doing you putting your team in the best position to win. And so the first year, I think we finished in fourth place, but we were fortunate enough to play really good basketball down the stretch. And we won the postseason conference tournament, made the NCAA tournament my first year. The second year, fourth place again, uh, we made it to the conference tournament. We lost in the championship game to Utah State. Third year was the dream year, 30 and two, and then have it cut short by COVID. And then last year, uh, we won the regular season and the postseason tournament. And so it's been a really fun run the first four years. But the only thing as a coach I want to do, I want to make sure I put my team in a position to win. Now, if they don't win, sometimes that happens. And, and, and you know what it is, Doug. You put it in your best player's hands, you give them space to play, and then he's going to make a play to win or lose the game. And then you have to live with that. I get upset where I call a play, it's in the wrong player's hands at the wrong time, and I don't put them in a position to win. If I put him in a position to win, then I'll live with the results. So whether that's – and usually that's your best player. Usually year one, that's, okay, I'm going to put it in Trey Cal's hands and we're going li- to live with what happens. Or year three, Malachi's going to make – he's going to win or lose a game and I'm good with that. If he wants to shoot it, shoot it. If he wants to pass it, pass it. I can't tell him what to do. He's a player. He makes a play. And then last year, obviously, uh, Matt Mitchell and Jordan Shackle are like so important to me because they were freshmen my first year. So they go through the program four years. They hang four banners and those two guys were absolute stars last year. I mean, Matt's conference MVP and Jordan shackles as good a cut shooter as there is in the country bouncing up, making game winning shots. I mean like 30 seconds of the game, like coming off a pin down, raising up, making it. That's not coaching. That's a player. Now I I'm living with those results. Those guys paid their dues of the program. So sometimes you overcomplicate it. You think a coach is winning games, uh, The players are going to win or lose a game. The coach just has to put them in a position to have a chance to do that.
3: It's a great way of looking at it. You mentioned the 30-2 and COVID year. In your heart of hearts, was that a national championship team?
4: I don't know. Maybe. 30-2, and maybe. You don't know. If Malachi gets hot for six games in March, maybe it is. You know, Yanni's good. I got Matt and Jordan, KJ. I got a really good team. So, yeah, if, if we get the right matchup, and, and we, we sneak one out we're not supposed to. You never know. Who Whoever knows who's really going to be the champion.
3: Um, your style defensively has changed over the years, right? There's some things that you do. You guys are always great in the boards. Free throw rebounding is always amazing. Right? There's some things that you do that are staples of San Diego State basketball. But you've gone through different incarnations of what you're doing In the full court, what you're doing in the half court. You know, there were a couple of years there where you guys were just, somebody declares the side, they ain't going to the other side. And you had such great length. I remember there was a year where uh, you guys tried to do a little pack line for a period of time, and then mid-season you nixed it. Um, Your personal philosophy at the defensive end, because that's really the calling card of what you guys have been able to do. Great defensively, great rebounding. What is your personal philosophy on what you want to do defensively?
4: Play hard, work on it every day. Everyday things. We do closeouts every day. You got to close out with high hands. We do shell drill every day. You got to be able to rotate. Uh, we have a fix it mentality. It's not going to go right. Just fix it. I don't care. If you run off a guy and it's not like we drew up, just fix it. I don't really care. Just get the results. And so, so, so many guys, the coaches say this is what it's going to be. And then when it doesn't happen that way, everyone stops because, oh, you made a mistake. You made a mistake. I don't care who makes a mistake. Just keep playing. Just play to the end of the possession. That's what the NBA does. They're in scramble 90% of the game. So we're in scramble. And then we try to, then a lot of scout specific. Are we going to send the ball down the baseline? Or are we going to send it middle? You know, it basketball changed, Doug, and you know how it was. I don't know if you played in an era where you had to keep your hand on top of the ball or you turned it over every time you dribbled it. But basically now basketball is five running backs. They, can, they go anywhere with that ball on the dribble. So it's really hard to guard them. So you got to try to, Pick what direction you want to send them and then ha- have help sitting there.
3: Um, now, this team, you mentioned we I mean, lost 3000 point scores last year's team. But I mean, this is where you talk about having a program. You built up a depth of athletic talent. You welcomed them in some new transfers. What's the challenges of this team after losing a couple of just great, great program guys?
4: I, I told this team, we're going to be good, but how soon we're good, I don't know. You know, are we going to be good from game one and hit, hit the ground running? Is it going to take us a while to figure out who we are? And a lot of that is, you know, I knew who I, I wanted to have the ball. Right now, I'm, I'm probably saying, let's put it in, in Trey Pulliam or Matt Bradley's hands and live with the results. Well, which one am I really going to put it in at the end of the game? You know, is it one one game, one the other? I don't know. So who's going to carry us down the stretch? We're going to guard hard. We're going to rebound. You know we have to shoot it. Obviously, we lost really good shooting, but we've got good shooters. We got to see if they make them timely games. And then who am I going to ride down the stretch when the game's on the line? And I, I may that may take a while to figure out.
3: You mentioned Matt Bradley. It's interesting, right? Here's a tremendous player at Cal transfers in, and and this is what I've always found fascinating about your program is you've had a lot you've had a lot of of, of transfers. Xavier Thames is the perfect example. He's at Wazoo. And he's a really good player, but they're not competing for league titles. They're not competing to go to the Sweet 16. So you don't really know how a kid is going to react because even though it's the same sport, it feels like a different sport when you're competing for a championship. It doesn't matter if it's Mountain West, Pac-12, whatever. Like there's a, a different level of attention to detail, the quality of shots, the quality of possessions, things you do defensively, you know, just things you can't try and get away with if you want to win a championship. Um, how do you teach that to like, let's say Matt, where he's been two years at Cal, but they haven't really won. So now he comes into a program where all you guys do is win. But part of it is there's a, a winning mentality, an understanding of defense and rebounding, the little the shots that you need to take to win. How do you teach that to players who have come from programs where it's not that that's not taught, but it's not as necessarily used as much or as important because they're just not competing for the top of their league or for the top uh, of the NCA pie.
4: A lot of that's recruiting. You have to ask them, why are they transferring? Why are they coming here? And most of the ones we take are saying, because I want to win at a higher level. Okay, so those are words out of their mouth. So when they get here, it's like, you want to win. This is what you have to do to win. You know, if, if you're recruiting a guy and he says, well, I want to come put my numbers up at your place, then maybe you don't want that. You want to you hear from them that, they're coming to win. And some guys we've had say, coach, I didn't want to score as much as I had to with this program, but I had to, I had a score for us to win. And that's not Matt. This is someone else, but this is just a general example. Yeah. I want to, I'm willing to sacrifice to win. And so when things don't go right, maybe they don't get their numbers and they come to you and like they're because we all are selfish to a degree that's human nature and their numbers aren't the same. Well, you came here to win. We're winning. And I told you you'd have to sacrifice part of your game to win. This is what it is. And so if you're honest with the message, you're honest why why they're coming here, uh, there's not a person in the world, they may not like it, but won't accept honesty. The thing you can't do is lie to them and say, I'm going to give you this many shots. I'm going to give you this many points. This is what you're going to do. And we're going to win. It's like, if you want to win, this is what it looks like. You know, you can't run to the ball. You got to space the floor. We have other good players. You can't, you, you, can't, you want them to give you space when you have it, then give them space. You know, don't run to the ball, stay spaced, uh, uh, move the ball. If you get two on you, pass the ball. If you got one on you, score the ball. It's as simple as that, you know, but if you get two on you, I don't want you shooting the ball. You have to move the ball. So, and now there are examples, three, two, one shot clock. Then you got to score. I don't care what it is. You got two on you, shoot the ball three, two, one, and you got to shoot it, shoot it. So it's just, It's just anything you would tell any kid that's playing in middle school on up, elementary school, play good basketball.
3: If you could change one thing about the college game, just the game itself, what would it be?
4: Oh, I like college basketball. I like The thing I like about college basketball that's different than pro basketball, I like throwing the ball inside. I like a post-up game. And it might not be a center. It might be uh, a Winston Shepard or JJ O'Brien, your power forward or your small forward or your guard. I like a post up game. And I, I just think. I love that about college where the NBA, I think a metric or such where they don't throw it in enough as much as the numbers tell you this. Yeah, I think. I think you have to throw the ball inside some to be a good team. I
3: I think, I think there's a couple of things. It's, It's a great, it's a great point. I think the reason that the PPP tells you to not throw it in, in the NBA game is they don't call fouls, right? It's so physical down there and you're like, well, they don't, you guys don't make it. Yeah, great. But if you call fouls, you know, especially when guys use their lower body, when you go up to shoot, um, it's a, it's a different, it, we look at the post game completely differently because you can, it's the body shot that you can get somebody into foul trouble, that you can get to the free throw line where you can, when you get to the free throw line, you can set up your defense as well or set up your press. Um, I do think we also, I think the NBA does it better than college, but I think some college start to use the post as a great spot to run your offense through, to pass out of, because it flattens the defense. Um, But that's a little bit advanced, but I think part of that is when you get, you know, your hybrid wings that you guys always have that can pass down there. They got to be able to score down there too. So they create everybody's attention, but automatically people pay attention to it. I love, you know, when I've coached uh, overseas, I love the short reset of the clock. I just think that's, it's, it's the, it's the best uh, because it, you get an offensive rebound and you guys are a great offensive rebounding team, but it triggers you to get another one up and then get another one up, get another one up and not bring it out and set offense. Right. I, I don't, I always, I've always been a stay away from the 24 second shot clock. I'm involved a little bit on that. Um, I think 30 is fine. I don't know, where are you on the shot clock?
0: I
4: like it. I mean, I, I mean, you're short in the shot clock and, and we're not the pros. We don't have everybody on the team is capable of getting a shot. And so you're dealing short shot clock, it's the wrong player's hands. And then it's bad basketball because they got to do something with it. Yeah. You know, so I think we want good basketball. So if that means an extra pass to get into good players' hands, everybody wants to see good players make plays, you know. So I think a, a shorter shot clock when you've got pro players out there is fine because everybody can make a play. Maybe some more capable than others, but everybody's capable of doing something. But in the college game, some guys aren't capable of making a play. They're rebounders or screeners or defenders. They're, they're, as much as you want them to have the ball, not everyone can make a play with the ball
3: has there been a moment where you've had the perspective of what it was like when you first got there to what it's like now?
4: Yeah. When you walk in and look at the banners, you walk in and there, you you don't have a banner. And then 23 later, years later, you have 14 banners up there for conference championships. That's where you sit there and go, wow, we've done a lot here. That's the most in the conference. So uh, that doesn't lie. You look up there and, we're here to win championships, so when you look at banners, that's championships. Now UCLA looks at only national championship banners, and we want to hang one of those. But you know, a conference title means something, and we play for one every year.
3: When when you call it quits, what do you want people to say, O'Brien oh, Dutcher? This is who he was as a coach.
4: Just that he was. Uh, he just won games. He just won basketball games. I don't, you know, I learned this from Steve. You know, when we win, let's give credit to the players. Let's give credit to other places. When we lose, then you have to step up and take the responsibility because you're the top of the program. And so I just want to win, win the right way, and, and, and help these kids graduate and make something of their lives beyond basketball. I mean, we, we talk beyond basketball every day some thought of the day, some life lesson. And I always said this about Steve Fisher and hopefully I'm somewhat the same. I'm getting there. Hopefully he was like that steady dripping water on a rock. You know, that steady dripping will eventually wear a hole in that rock. And that's like, these kids are like rocks. Like we deliver the same message and some of them might get it from day one. Some might take three years, but when they left the program, they all had a little Steve Fisher in them. Hopefully when they leave the program, they'll all have a little bit of me with them for the rest of their lives, whether it's a message I deliver or the way I carry myself.
3: You mentioned that. Is there a player that you think of that like, forget about the NBA. We changed this kid's life. from When he got here to what he's doing now.
4: We got a few right now. We're trying to change their lives. So (laughs) every day, that's the beauty of this job. I mean, I turned uh, 62 the other day and, and, I'm still working with 17, 18 and 19 year olds. So uh, uh, the age group never changes. So it's the same challenges every year with that age group and, and just try to uh, get them focused on the right things that uh, uh, they're, this is, I try to tell them, this is a very small window. Four years seems like forever, but this window was so small to make the most of what you have uh, to get yourself prepared for life. Uh, either in basketball and more importantly, beyond basketball, this window is small. So we have to do everything to maximize what you're doing here. And just trying to, you know, speak that daily message about doing the right things, representing yourself first, your family second, and this program third. Don't do anything that would embarrass any of us.
3: Your favorite win. Favorite win? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: National championship game, 1989 over Seton Hall.
3: You're your, uh, the loss that still hurts the most.
4: UNLV game, 10 point lead with under a minute to go. Lost in overtime. What happened? Uh, missed free throws, fouled on a three. You know, that kind of lead with that amount of time is tough to lose. And that was devastating. So you always remember the losses more than the wins, you know. No question. That's Not the nature no of the business.
3: Uh, it's the nature of the sports, nature of, you know, when you think it thinking, man, um, yeah. give me a game. You think you lost. You personally. I lost
4: personally. Yeah.
3: Yes. Uh, you said you got to put kids in the best situation. You're like, you know what? I screwed that one up. I know you take credit for every loss, but it's not really you don't you don't. it's not really your fault. But there are some that you're like, yeah, I screwed that one up.
4: I'm trying to think subbed when
3: you shouldn't have subbed, burned a timeout that you shouldn't have burned. You know,
4: I know. Well, Dave Velasquez yells at me all the time. He, he says, you think you're taking those timeouts of the grave with you? Come on, take a timeout. And I don't take enough timeouts, I guess. I like them till the end. I think when you get in a close I game, agree. it's yeah. almost like the NFL. It's like you need those timeouts. It's like if you need two at the end, like if you're getting pressed at the end and your timeouts are gone and you turn it over, I'm going to be sick taking one early. You know, so sometimes I think these guys are good enough to play through some of this. I tell the guys what am I going to tell them in the timeout? They know what they have to do. They just got to get it done, you know? It's not like a disaster. So uh, I'm maybe I I don't take enough timeouts maybe. Are I don't know 20? what game specifically. I can't think of the game. I, there are plenty of them, but I can't think of one specifically.
3: When you take a guy out, are you when you're mad, you do you hook a guy? You you do you, what's your what's your what's your move for getting a guy out of the game?
4: I just, you know, Sometimes the assistants, you know, I want to get, like, mistakes happen in basketball. That's the thing maybe I'm more suited to now than I was younger. You know, guys aren't there trying to trying to make mistakes. Right. And sometimes, no matter how well you prepare, you're going to get off to a bad start. It's a long game. I try not to overreact to everything. You know, if we if a team gets an 8-0 start on us, I'm not pulling a starting five and yelling at everybody, you weren't ready to play. It happens. 8-0 runs are... That's every game everywhere. So, you know, I'm not trying to overreact to anything. I'm, Like I said, this is a lesson I learned from Steve Fisher. We're teachers. We're coaches, but we're teachers. And our classroom is the court. So we teach every day. We give them all the answers. But the game is the test. I can't give you the answers now. You have to know the answers. Now, after the game, we can go back and watch tape. There'll be plenty to learn after that we can correct the test. But right now, I don't want you obsessing over every mistake. Just go out there and play you know the answers, and and I think some coaches micromanage their teams during the game. They yell at every mistake, and and then you yell at this end. Now they don't play defense at that end. Now they give a layup up. You yell at defense, and now they're thinking about that, and they're back trying to play offense, thinking of the mistake they just made on defense. You know, that's why sometimes may it may appear like we're not coaching them hard, but we've coached them hard all week. Now we got to let them play because we've given them a game plan. If they can't follow it, we're going to get beat, but I can't. Give them the game plan while the game's going on.
3: Favorite arena to play at that, that you guys play at? Because now I was there when you beat Kansas at Kansas, but I tell people all the time when New Mexico's right, that place is unbelievable.
4: You can't coach your team in there. You can't hear it. You can't, you, you can't, your team can't hear you in a timeout. It can get that loud in there. So they take you out of the game. The fans take the coach out of the game. They yeah, can't I a play.
3: What I think is unique about that place is not just below ground, altitude, I think all that, but it's that the old people, like your guy's Gucci row is pretty loud, right? But their Gucci row, their fans are there. I don't even know if they have a student section. I know they got, but it feels like every adult in town just comes with the sole purpose of now I can scream for the next two hours. And so you get
4: old people that are just as
3: into it as the the students are. That's what I think is unique about Albuquerque.
4: It is so loud. It is so loud. We've had some epic games in there. And obviously, Richard is trying to get it going. Paul, you know, Paul had a really good first year. That was incredible. But then, like I said, this is where you talk about the window. You know, your window's small. You know, year three or four, you know, if you're not winning, then people get nervous and they want to make a change all the time. And I don't know if that's good or bad.
3: Um, you, you mentioned so many things that you learned from Steve the lesson or the phrase or something your dad said that rattles around in your brain often is what?
4: Boy, now you're really dating back. Cause I was in college then. It's just, you know, it's just how you treat people. It's not a message. You, you treat people the right way. You know, uh, uh, uplift people, be honest with them, but try to uplift them. Don't, you know, it's hard enough. Uh, with a guy that's on you every day, every day. Now there were coaches like that, and there's the it's flipped. There are fewer coaches that that are browbeating their kids, and 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 that's where the games changed. And a lot of that's just because of uh, people are less tolerant of of you can't treat people the wrong way, and and maybe you know there's life lessons in that too. But I've never been that way. I've always been a guy I try to uplift people around me. My dad was that way, you know, treat people the right way, treat them with respect and you'll get the most out of them.
3: Did you know Kawhi was going to be, and I know he's currently hurt, but did you, did, did you know?
4: I called back to the office, watched him work out his junior year. And I said, I think this kid's an NBA player. Now did I think he was one of the top five players in the world. No, I didn't think that but I thought he was an NBA player when I watched him as going into a senior year of high school.
3: Have you ever heard the story of my brother when he was at, when he wanted to re- sign him at Cal? You know the story?
4: Yeah. I was at the same workout.
3: Okay. So uh, I'll, I'll share with you his version of it and how I played a, a small role in it. So he gets, so he gets to stay on with Monty because he went up there to do be with Ben. And you know, he's got a, he's the recruiting coordinator. Monty hadn't recruited, you know, since he he left, left to college. So he's like, what do we need? He's like, well, we need bigs. Well, who are we going to go get? he's like, there aren't that many good bigs, but there's a kid named Kawhi Leonard, MLK high school in Riverside. That's the one we need to get. How big is he? six, five, six, six. I thought you said we need a big, let's just go see him. So they go see him and Monty famously said, I love him, but he's not big enough to play inside in the pack pack 10. You know, and you know, Greg's trying to sell, like, look, he's not going to be a five, he's going to be a four, then eventually be a three. He's like, you don't have to sell me on the kid. I love the kid. I don't need any more wings. And he's not big enough to play inside the pack 10.
4: Not big enough was- to be a four, not skilled enough to be a three. That was the talk, yeah. right? So,
3: um, and and Greg had been trying to, you know, regardless of whether he took him or didn't take him. He was like, you got to get this kid in the McDonald's All American team. He's a player of the year in California. He's not in the McDonald's All American. It's a joke. This guy's so good and he he deserves recognition. It was more about recognition for, yeah. for Kawhi. I mean. So you guys get him. Fast forward one year later. I'll never forget this. It's um I think you guys played in the semifinals or maybe the quarterfinals. And he had 20 and 20 as a freshman. 20 and 20. And so uh Greg calls me and they just played a game. And I'm in the control room. The way it worked at ESPN, you had this, it was like three different sets, and then there's like a little open kind of control room where you could go in while you're on in on, you're in studio, but you're not gonna sit at the desk the whole time. It's just it's hot, it's not fun. You go in, and when the researcher is, you got all the games up. So you got like 20 games up. So uh he calls me and I was like, hey man, that's a good win. I was like, "Do you see what Kawhi did?" He's like, "No." I was like, "He had twenty and 20. <laughs> so he puts me on speaker. Oh, geez. He goes, Here we go. Hey. He goes, "Hey, uh, Doug, tell tell me again how did Kawhi Leonard do?" I go, oh. "He had twenty and twenty in a conference tournament game." And uh, Monty in the background's like, "Kiss my ass! Don't ever say that name of my presence ever again!" Right? I love it. Yeah, it was. I mean, he's he uh, just an amazing, amazing player that. I'm really honestly, I mean, he would have been great at wherever else he went. The PAC 12 schools would have gone hard after him, but he just fits you guys. Right. Like that's the unique thing about Kawhi is he fit your culture. Right. And, and I, I know you took him because he's so good, but it isn't amazing how the greatest player that you've coached at San Diego state perfectly fit your culture. and, and he's a, he that that's to me what it signifies is it's not just about how good he is. It's about he because of his defense, his toughness, his rebounding, but also is willing to get the willingness to get in the gym and work on his game and his improvement. Like those are all and he was a little under recruited, a little under the radar, a little undersized. Those are all all of your best players are like Kawhi Leonard and your best player you ever had. That's what he was like.
4: Chip on his shoulder. Hardest worker I've ever been around. Worked harder at his game, more focused in his work than anyone I've ever seen. To get better.
3: I know you got to go. I really appreciate your time. It's going to be awesome. Can't wait to see you. I got uh, several of your games and we'll talk then.
4: Looking forward to it, dog. Thank you.
3: Thanks, brother. All right. My thanks to Brian Dutcher giving us all that time. My thanks to you for downloading the pod. Reminder: the Doug Gottlieb Show is daily, 3 to 6 Eastern, 12 to 3 Pacific on the iHeartRadio app and foxsportsradio.com. Wherever you listen to Fox Sports Radio, and of course, Sirius XM 217. 203 it's the same channel as dan patrick not the fox sports channel i i I could go into reasons why but you don't really care just trying to give you the content download subscribe rate make sure you tell a friend about this tweet it out put it out on facebook whatever it's really good i'm doug this is all ball
1: Terms and conditions apply. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority
5: Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card...
1: Right this way.
5: It's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
2: With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.
1: Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets.